Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Sleep Number. Talk more about that in a little bit. I also want to remind people, because my um, my partners in crime are telling me I should in- encourage people to sign up at Reagan35x.com for the G-File and other updates on our new uh, business venture. I promise there'll be more than uh, just G-Files coming to you shortly, but more importantly, there'll be G files coming to you shortly, and, and who 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 does not want my quote unquote newsletter? Um, only you know mopers and pederasts or something. I don't know. So anyway, with that said, we are we are going back to the well, as it were, with one of as I was just telling our guest, if they made a Mount Rushmore of uh, remnant guests, he would definitely be a contender to have his face carved in stone in North Dakota by a white supremacist. So <laughs> here we have Scott Lincecum of the Cato Institute, also world-renowned trade lawyer and nacho expert. Correct. Welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be back. I, I got my embroidered robe, remnant, you know, being rem, remnant Rushmore in, uh-huh. in the mail. It was really very nice. Yeah, I, you know, we, we, the, we skimped on nothing with the Cambodians who made that with their tiny little hands. Perfect. Which is what you're in favor of. Uh, of course. Yeah. Comparative hey. advantage. So for listeners who don't know, haven't you know, we'll put links to the previous episodes, but we periodically check in with Scott on the issue of trade in part to keep him from self-harm because things have not gone the way he would prefer. Is that it's fair to say? I think that's fair to say. <laughs> um, you are a free trader? I am. Are you a neoliberal? Yeah, you know, I I tend to still say libertarian. Uh-huh. However, in my old age, I've become more accepting of, you know, neoliberal inter- market interventions, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. So in my youth, I I was, you know, of course against all of that, but a little more neoliberal. I'd say. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't I have to be honest. The rise of neoliberal as a thing, neoliberalism as a thing that people defend and fight over, kind of took me by surprise. Yeah. I, I might want to do because you got to do something to get the teenagers interested in this podcast. Maybe a whole episode on what is neoliberalism. Yeah, because I, I think it'd be great. I don't completely understand it. Myself. No, and you shouldn't because it's like a lot of those terms, particularly in the punditry world. Where it can mean anything right. to anyone. On the left, it is often this horrible pejorative. On the right, it's not as much so. But at the same time, I mean, there is kind of a general definition of neoliberalism that I think you know really would would uh, encompass a lot of us soft libertarian types. Okay. All right. Well, well to be continued. Sure. Anyway, so how's it going on the world of trade? Ha. Huh. <laughs> well. Um, it is more of the same, you know, so we really are now about 15 months into the true Trump trade policy. For the first year, it, we kind of just sat around twiddling our thumbs. There were a lot of Federal Register notices issued, but really only starting in January and then picking up much in March of last year, 2018, did we start to see the tariffs mm-hmm. coming. And since then, you know, it's pretty much gone by the textbook, uh, believe it or not. So, you know, for the listeners, I wrote a paper a couple years ago just looking at the history of American protectionism. And you see really three main things. You see uh, a lot of economic costs for consumers, an extremely high price that consumers pay for any jobs saved in the industries that are being protected. Um, You see a lot of policy objectives, whether it is protecting and saving certain industries and companies or uh, achieving some sort of breakthrough in negotiations, um, you see that that the tariffs and protectionism don't don't achieve those typically. And then, of course, you see a lot of political dysfunction. Um, you see a lot of lobbying and cronyism and all that. And we've seen really all of that. Right. In the last year, um, the steel tariffs, the aluminum tariffs, uh, and all of the tariffs on Chinese imports, plus some stuff on washing machines and solar panels, they're all still here. Um, the only thing that's changed really is um, that Aluminum and steel tariffs for Canada and Mexico have been removed because the Canadians and Mexicans quite smartly said they're not touching Trump's new NAFTA unless those are removed. So those were finally and begrudgingly removed um, a couple months ago. And we've seen a a significant increase in the scope of the China tariffs. Mm -hmm. Um, 
However, beyond that, we haven't really seen much movement in, you know, this grand 3D chess negotiating plan by the president. Look, you know, we don't have deals with the EU. That's kind of sitting out there in this threat of more tariffs on cars as national security threats, of course. We've seen uh, same with Japan. I should, I should just stop yeah. you there for the benefit of, of listeners. Yeah. With your wry, sardonic reference to national security threat. Right. We should explain to people that the authority that President Trump invokes to do all of these tariffs yeah. is not constitutionally the president's. It's that the House or the Congress gave over the years, over many years of sort of uh, gelding themselves in a larger constitutional sense, they gave the president power to uh, impose tariffs and, and muck around with trade in other ways if it was done in the name of national security. Yeah, and a bunch of other things. But the right. national security is where... It's a big part of it. Yeah, right now in particular. So for years, uh, these laws have been on the books for decades, and presidents have generally avoided invoking national security to uh, push protectionism. They've done it for a lot of reasons. Um, to build walls, for yeah, example. Yeah, of course. <laughs> on the U.S. side um, and the domestic law side, um, it, it's a pretty expansive use of the authority delegated to the president. In the past, Congress has has guarded that authority somewhat. Even though they've delegated, they, they get kind of upset if that's if it's abused. But on the global WTO, World Trade Organization side, um, countries have avoided invoking national security because there's a big gaping exception in WTO rules for national security measures to preserve member sovereignty. So typically, it's kind of the third rail of international trade law was national security. And the president just ran right through it or touched, you know, whatever right. it is. And, and, and so we've seen national security measures on steel and aluminum. We've seen investigations on automobiles and uranium. Um, we've seen in on the China side, they're not using national security for the main tariffs, but we're seeing it with respect to technology products and Huawei and, and other things. So was the Canadian milk stuff, was that done in the name of national security? Fortunately, no. It was just simply part of the NAFTA renegotiation. Okay. So the the biggest national security issues are either on the sanctions side, which is that's pretty standard stuff, sanctions. It's the tariffs and the national security implications there that are really different and, and problematic. As I've said before, if, if, if imports of cars, if imports of Ford Festivas are a national security threat, then anything's a national security threat. And it really undermines your credibility um, when real national security threats arise. Right. Um, and of course, it just ticks off the world because you're, you're and, and American consumers and car dealers and uh, a lot of multinational companies that have located in the United States to make cars, but they import parts. Of course, they're upset and all their workers Huge mess. So the president, along those lines, a few months ago, declared, uh, agreed with the Commerce Department that imports of automobiles and of parts are national security threat because they deter investment by American companies. So never mind all those workers in Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee and Detroit and elsewhere that are working for foreign nameplate companies. No, no. They are all national security threats because they're not American. So... Back to the spiel about where we are. So those tariffs have not been imposed. Instead, the president punted and said he was going to negotiate with the EU and Japan um, in particular. Uh, thus far, um, we've seen no, well, no movement on the EU side. And we've seen a little movement on the Japanese side. But on the Japanese side, it really appears to be maybe getting us back to where we would have been under the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, mm. which President Trump, of course, withdrew from uh, two years ago. Right. So uh, outside of those negotiations, of course, we have the USMCA, the NAFTA. Um, that is languishing in Congress. You know, the, the administration did not do a lot of homework on consulting with Congress to get the USMCA through. Congress still has retained the authority to approve U.S. trade agreements, whether it's NAFTA and WTO, whatever. Um, and so right now, the president is waiting for Nancy Pelosi's thumbs up to submit what we call implementing legislation to essentially change U.S. law to such that um, it so that it incorporates the agreement that the president signed uh, um, about eight, nine months ago. Okay, so factual question, yeah. or mostly factual. USMCA, everyone I've ever talked to says, eh, 
It's basically NAFTA with some bells and whistles. Yeah. A, is that true? And B, what are the bells and whistles? Right. So uh, it's it's like a lot of things, and I hate to sound like a lawyer, it's true and not true. So on the things that that everybody talks about, trade in goods, agriculture, automobiles, steel, whatever, it's basically... NAFTA 1.1. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very modest changes. You know, there's a little more market access for dairy in Canada, but I'm talking a, sh- a sliver. Um, there are some changes to other, t- you know, tariffs and stuff, but really, really minor. So the good thing for we free traders is that the USMCA maintains essentially the free flow of goods and services and even uh, in labor. A lot of individuals, so typically professional visas and stuff, all that stays. The problem is that most of the changes outside of that dairy market access are actually bad in terms of trade and goods. Um, There are these very onerous new rules of origin that essentially require – that dictate Mexican wage rates. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so we're we're demanding Mexico have certain minimum wages for auto production um, that that mandate uh, domestic content. Um, I have unfortunately had to parse these uh, new rules. They are um, inscrutable and I – even by trade lawyer standards – they are just brutal. Um, and so, you know, so much for deregulation and free markets. And there are a few other things on the good side that you really just you don't really like um, on government procurement, for example, that kind of stuff, buy American rules, all that kind of stuff. Now, that's on the stuff that everybody cares about. However, the stuff that we don't talk about, there actually are some pretty significant changes. And and a lot of them are for the good, um, most notably on digital trade. So... United States, Canada, and Mexico have been handling digital trade. So this is basically, you know, you click a button and some software program comes across or you have services that are transmitted through the internet, that kind of stuff. Um, So they've kind of just been doing it on the honor system. So there hasn't been a problem with protectionism in digital trade, but there haven't been rules governing it um, that would prevent, you know, uh, backsliding or other issues. Or, um, you know, there are all these kind of safe harbor issues and and other things that are very um, wonky. But um, that said, the USMCA does a good job of codifying these, um, these kind of rules of the road and does it in a way that I think that free marketers generally like. Mm-hmm. And so in the sense that uh, USMCA does have some of these 21st century rules, there's some pretty good stuff in there. Now, that said, I mentioned the auto rules of origin. There are also some other things in there that really stink. There are side letters essentially granting Canada and Mexico quotas um, for in case the president imposes auto tariffs. Um, so they can have certain amount of autos uh, that come in uh, tariff-free. Mm-hmm. So essentially um, codifying this national security justification. And you can understand why Canada and Mexico did it. They're just trying to get away from um, Trump's uh, bullseye. But it's it's not good for for uh, long-term precedent. So what is your argument, the, the minimum wage standards for Mexican laborers? That's something like organized labor here has been pushing for, sure. for a gazillion yeah. years, right? Right. What is your standard go-to criticism of that? Well, trade is all about comparative advantage. And the Mexican laborers are generally not as productive in the, than than U.S. laborers. They therefore are paid less. So we should be clear about something. Just let, lest we get accused of white supremacy or something here, right? Part of the reason why Mexican laborers are less productive is that their system itself yeah. is less. Oh productive, yeah, of right? course. I'm sorry. I yeah, mean, like Arnold Kling and Nick Schultz have the great stuff about these studies where. A Mexican laborer simply by crossing the U.S. border becomes like six times more. Oh productive. yeah, it's purely it, not purely. Uh, it's an institutional issue, and I'm talking purely in economic terms. Right. So, you weren't talking about phrenology or anything. You know. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's it's simply a matter of the Mexican wage rates. With with you know there are of course exceptions, but generally reflect the productivity of the Mexican worker in Mexico. So. That is standard comparative advantage stuff. And that's why a lot of very uh, labor-intensive, low-skill manufacturing uh, after NAFTA was implemented moved to Mexico because it's simply that's that's what trade is supposed to do. We're going to focus on, on higher 
productivity stuff, more capital-intensive stuff. They're going to focus on less capital-intensive stuff. And in the process, they're going to get richer. And that's generally happened. And so the whole idea of mandating American wage rates in a lower-wage nation essentially short-circuits all of that. And quite frankly, is just backdoor protectionism. Um, You're essentially requiring um, Mexican workers to lose their comparative advantage Mm -hmm. and in the process to be unable to develop. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's why – Unless you're American labor union. Right. Of course. No, it's perfect then because then it's basically a non-tariff barrier to trade in the products where those wages are mandated. Um, So – uh, you know, typically free traders uh, object or oppose these types of mandates because, again, they short circuit the whole point of the agreement. Now, uh, can there be rules on, for example, uh, uh, backsliding in labor law to a- attempt to attract investment? Yeah, and we have those in trade agreements for a long time. There's not a lot of controversy there. Um, it's the actual dictating industrial practices. Mm-hmm. So really a heavy-handed kind of you must do you must use american steel for example, you must uh, have these wage rates, you have, must produce your batteries if you're producing electric cars, they have to have this type of content. That's just all very very technocratic tinkering that, you know, in the olden days, uh free market conservatives and republicans didn't like. Yeah. Uh guys like Larry Kudlow who now uh brag about all the auto jobs that USMCA is going to produce. Because of these rules, I love Larry. Larry's on a journey. I'm looking forward for Larry to come home. I don't want to. And he 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 said the other day, when asked about whether or not Trump just simply made up that thing with India, right, uh, which was really bad for people who didn't follow it because it's been a news cycle. In a meeting with the Prime Minister of Pakistan or the President of Pakistan, Trump just made up this thing that Modi, the President of India, asked Trump to to be the intercessor on the dispute over Kashmir, which could not possibly be true, and forced the Indian government to come out and say, this is not true, in very polite diplomatic terms. And poor Larry was asked about it, and he said that it's insult... That the question... Being questioned about it is insulting because this president doesn't make things up. Of course. And so on that point... Yeah. We've talked many times here about how the view pushed by the president quite often that foreign countries, that China pays its tariffs, yeah. right? And the standard free market model, which I think has been borne out, yeah. is that that is not true. American consumers right. pay it because that's where the money comes from, right? Yeah. So we're going to stipulate that part, right? Because we agree on that and that's... Yeah, that's and the, there have now, since we last talked, <laughs> there have actually been two very rigorous academic studies of who's paying the tariffs. And it's almost entirely borne by American consumers so far. And by consumers, I mean individuals and companies. Businesses, right. So but that, so that gets me, you, you actually phrase it just the way I want you need to do, because I hear that a lot. Like if you listen to Marketplace or if you're in the Wall Street Journal, they'll say academic studies show yeah. that almost all of the money comes from domestic consumers, either businesses or, or individuals. Yeah. Why do they say almost? Yeah. What What is the last bit that isn't being paid by them? Yeah, so it's it's about what we call tariff incidents. Uh-huh. And so there is, in theory, a way for Chinese companies, not China, but Chinese companies that are sell, selling these products in the United States, to, to pay the tariff indirectly. And that is if they lowered their price by the tariff amount, uh-huh. then the American importer would technically pay the tariff. But because the price went down, at the end of the day, you're back at zero. Right. So so to have a very simple example, if um, you have a, a product that costs 80 bucks, and there's a 25% tariff, you're, to- you're talking about your total hit is 100 bucks. Now, um, you could, in theory, just simply lower the price, mm-hmm. and that would allow for uh, the American consumer to not pay that tariff, but Chinese companies just don't really seem to be doing that. And so, have we seen any of it? I mean, a little. And, yeah. and so, but if you look at the data and if you look at these studies, basically they say that if you were to actually have China paying the tariffs, you would see a, tr- a really significant decline in import prices for the products at issue. So, if there's a tariff on cars, you would see. 
uh, import automotive import prices drop dramatically. And you've seen them go down by like a percentage point. So it's not that it's not happening at all. It's just not happening to a great scale, Mm -hmm. which of course, anybody who actually works in this field understands it was never going to happen, at least especially not immediately, because most of these products are not, you know, you and I clicking a button and some dude in China mailing us a product. It's companies uh, importing especially a lot of industrial goods and raw materials under long-term contracts. And those contracts stipulate who's going to pay the tariff. And in the olden days, the tariff was 1%. Now the tariff's 25%. And so you have American companies on the hook for Mm. that. And of course, in the process, you have U.S. companies that might make directly competitive stuff. Well, they're not going to sit there and charge their old price. They're going to raise their prices to, you know, the tariff amount minus one. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what we've seen. Yeah. I knew a guy years ago. Was there a, under Obama, was there talk about raising a tariff? Yeah. Well, uh, we, yeah, yeah. so he put tariffs on uh, tires from China. Yeah. There was something. He owned a. A very high-end lighting company, okay. and light bulbs were his like major, you know, unit yep. of production, and they mostly came from China. And oh, and it wasn't it wasn't protectionism thing; it was the mandatory switch to halogen or something yeah, like yeah. that. And but he talked about how price sensitive that business was sure. to things like tariffs and all that. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um, let me let me circle back to one thing because we were talking about what the landscape is. Good and check. Um, yeah. So you know we've already talked about consumer costs. That's happened pretty right. much according to the textbooks. We've seen a little bit of new investment in the protected industries. A little, um, certainly not enough to cover the tariff costs and the additional consumer hit. You've seen a little. On the other hand, you've seen uh, the the stocks of steel prices collapse because the trade war has actually dinged global demand and domestic demand. You know, go figure. You raise prices and inject a bunch of uncertainty. People are going to buy less. So you're actually seeing stock prices for steel companies um, collapse over Mm -hmm. the last year, uh, particularly compared to the S&P that's doing pretty well. Um, You've seen uh, uh, several aluminum companies or U.S. aluminum companies were complaining forever because half their supply chain was in Canada. So you haven't really seen this great resurgence. And you've seen, I think, like a 1,000 steel jobs total in terms of new investment. So you haven't had any sort of grand protectionist revival in the industries that are being protected. And the other thing, importantly, is we haven't seen any huge breakthrough in these negotiations, right? Other than the U.S.-Korea FTA, which was renegotiated a year ago and it was just a couple modest tweaks, there have been no big deals, you know, and this is President Deals, right? He said American trade negotiators, a bunch of idiots. I, all I have to do is use tariffs and I can get anything I want. And in the trade space, in the trade deal space, there's been nada. Now, maybe USMCA gets passed eventually. Maybe there is this Japan deal that gets us back to TPP. But so far, you know, the China stuff, I mean, they're heading back to China, but there's been no major breakthrough. Nobody expects it at this point. Um, There just really hasn't been that policy objective also hasn't been achieved. And, uh, you know, again, to go back, if you look at the history of the use of tariffs to try to achieve U.S. negotiating objectives, it just doesn't work very well, about 20 percent of the time. Okay, so but hasn't the the credibility of people like you and me who are like free trade people, doesn't it take a bit of a hit with the fact that the economy is not tanked, that the stock market is not tanked, that the stock market doesn't seem to really care on day-to-day trading. Every now and then the China stuff seems to move it a bit. But we're at like record highs right yeah, now. Right. Um, well, what is your explanation for all that? Sure. You can't, you can't say the sky is falling. because No, no. And I, and you know, I, I did a long, fortunately, I memorialized this last March, um, but I did a long tweet thread of what we can expect. And I think that legitimate trade experts, not people in the media, not pundits, but people who really follow this stuff were never preaching economic Armageddon. The fact is that, um, Trade as a share of, and I'm talking all trade, mm-hmm. as a share of U.S. GDP is relatively low, particularly compared to a lot of other countries. Manufacturing in the United States is about 10%, 10 to 12% of the economy, depending on. And of course, we didn't have tariffs on all products. And in fact, even if you had tariffs on every import from China, we still don't have that. It's about half of them right now. Chinese goods only make up a tiny fraction of total American consumption. It's about 3% max. Is that is it disproportionately, though, in retail, and that's why yeah, people see it's, it? Yeah, and it, so it's industrial inputs and 
and T-shirts and, and mm-hmm. uh, consumer electronics, that kind of stuff. Because China's long been what we call a snap-together hub. You basically import a bunch of stuff from other countries and then um, you assemble it in China and ship it. Here it says made in China. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there's cool studies on that. But anyway, so when you when you consider all of that, the impact of tariffs on steel, aluminum, Chinese trade and whatever was never going to be – economy crushing. The problem is that it injects a lot of uncertainty and we actually have seen business investment, which is supposed to be totally stoked by this tax law, just kind of petering. I mean, it's, it's, it's doing okay, but it mm-hmm. shouldn't, it didn't explode like, like everybody was expecting. Um, and uh, foreign direct investment is very flat as well. And so you've seen essentially it appears that the tariffs have just muted the benefits of all the tax reform. And that's the other important thing, right? We passed this massive tax bill right before the tariffs were implemented. So that so you have companies that, yeah, they're getting hit by the tariffs and they're upset with the uncertainty, but they also got a nice big fat mm-hmm. um, uh, tax relief. Mm-hmm. Um, so you combine all that together and it's just it – was, it was never going to be this just huge shock. Um, however, if you do look at even the stock market from the time that the trade wars started mm-hmm. to now, it still hasn't been that great. It's been fine, but you know we were really cruising in 2017. I mean, cruising, and in early 2018, things kind of started plateauing, and we've gone up a little bit since then. But this, you know. It's it's hasn't been this just it's not the greatest economy ever. Right. Um, and in fact, you've seen, like I said, you know, some some warning signs. Manufacturing indices are now treading water. So they were increasing quite nicely. They're now treading water. We're actually shedding some manufacturing jobs here and there. Um, and so whether that infects the rest of the economy, it, who knows? Um, and whether this uncertainty, um, you know, I think the Mexico immigration tariffs really scared a lot of folks, but that appears to have disappeared again. And so I think it's really gone pretty much according to plan for those, again, who weren't just saying, oh, this is all gloom and doom. This is horrible Armageddon stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move on in just a second to the fact that, you know, I've been hearing for years that the perfidious bagel snarfing warmongers called the neocons run everything. And now it turns out that we were just basically the front men for the globalist libertarians yeah, who run yeah. everything. Yeah. But before I get to that, um, I really want to talk to you about sleep number beds. <laughs> Excited. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm actually a huge fan of sleep number beds. Um, as I've mentioned before, I literally can't get one in my my bedroom because of the way our stairs were misdesigned in my house, but I've slept in them before. One of the things I have... I know this is shocking to a lot of people given my reputation for being such a stellar athlete and um, and living such a clean and healthy lifestyle. But um, I actually have all sorts of like back issues and I do snore. Um, it's not sleep apnea, uh, but I do snore. And my wife and I, it's a source of, of drama about who's going to leave to accommodate all these things. And this is one of the main reasons I would love to get a sleep number bed because um, – Every time I've been in one, I, you can just basically adjust the position that stops the snoring um, and also in a position that sort of helps with your back and all the rest. And I'm just very jealous of it. And one day I think it's going to get to the point where I'm going to sell my house just so I can move someplace that allows for sleep number beds to be moved into the bedroom. Um, either that or I may just have one put in the living room, which is a kind of a weird look. Anyway. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. Sleep number 360 smart beds let you choose your ideal firmness on each side so it's just right for both of you. The sleep number 360 smart beds are so smart, they sense your every move, kind of like Skynet, and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night, not like Skynet. Sleep Number has been ranked number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power. For 2018 award information, just visit jdpower.com. So come in now and save up to $600 on on select Sleep Number 360 smart beds. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash dingo. 
and I'm quite serious about this, people. It would be great if you actually, you know, there's no obligation here, but if you went in and did sleepnumber.com slash dingo, it would create powerful more incentive structures for advertising on this podcast, which once we get things back up and running, or back up, up and running with our, the new venture, we are going to be much more aggressive about um, advertising or sponsorships on this podcast. So positive results from sleepnumber.com slash dingo would be a nice down payment on all of that. Uh, thank you to Sleep Number for advertising on The Remnant. And now back to uh, our conversation with uh, Scott Linscombe. Okay, so you may have noticed that the things are continuing to uh, iterate on the intellectual right of center. Yeah. And um, recently, you know, we're, call- we're recording this the last week of July – and so we're a little ways out of from it, but there was a big national conservative summit thing yeah. where they, among other things, had a poll of the audience. And I want to put on my political pundit hat here for just two seconds because Patrick Deneen, a guy I like and whose, um, and whose arguments in his book I have more sympathy with than a lot of the other sort of new nationalist types – but he tweeted out the results of this poll that Orrin Cass did of his audience, which found – I don't remember what the exact number was, but it was a majority like 70 to 30 or 60 to 40 out of an audience of about 150 people were in favor of the resolution that we need a new national economic policy. Right, yes. And I just want to point out for people – and so Patrick – the reason I bring in just dragging in Patrick is that Patrick Deneen tweeted out – with those results saying, this is not your father's conservative movement or anything like that, or William F. Buckley's conservative movement or whatever. It's like, well, there's a filter bias problem here, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, it's pretty giant. It's like, you know, my, one of my favorite maybe apocryphal stories is that Richard Nixon was once asked whether he thought uh, overpopulation was a problem. And he said, well, of course overpopulation is a problem. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. Right. You know, maybe because you're president of the United States. <laughs> um, if you have a conference that's built with Tucker Carlson, who's endorsing Elizabeth Warren's economic program, right. billed as the new nationalist conservative movement, yeah. you might get an atypical response from an audience there that is hanging out to see Orrin Cass talk about national economic policy. Yeah, not policy. a bunch of rabid free trade or free market types. Right. We could, we could put on a luncheon event between you and me at Cato and poll the audience and, you know, we could say – Conservatives are more in favor of free markets than ever before. Yeah. I mean, it just anyway. So, w- how do you answer? I mean, I feel like I should. We should get like Bain to have a trial for you. Um, yeah, I, I agree because it turns out that you have been uh, uh, running the show yeah. all along as a libertarian free market guy. Yeah, right? I'm, I've been the puppet master. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, just just for the listeners. So, I've been doing trade stuff in DC since the the late 90s. So, um, and so I have a pretty good handle on whether libertarians are, are running the show, particularly, especially on trade policy. Because I think what you see, and I saw um, Ross Douthat just the other day say this, that, okay, well, fine. Libertarians haven't been running things in terms of foreign policy, but on social issues, which uh, I'm, that's not my mm-hmm. area, but and on trade, the trade consensus, it's clearly a libertarian trade consensus, which is laughable, quite mm-hmm. frankly. The fact is that – and this is what's really frustrating to me. I mean aside from the fact that – I mean look, you look at major US policy over the last 30 years and the idea that you know libertarians are running things, it's, I mean it's pretty – pretty funny. Mm-hmm. But even on trade, um, it's just simply not the case. And and what troubles me about this is that you're not talking to actual trade people about these issues. You're talking to people who are labor economists, who have read a few papers about the China shock, or they see the trade deficit, or they see U.S. tariff rates. And they that's basically then their consensus – oh, we're clearly just a giant free trade nation. Mm-hmm. This is how it's worked. Well, I can tell you for a fact that you know at Cato, since, since I have been there and certainly long before that, there has been a lot of criticism of U.S. trade policy. And that's because the United States, yes, we have low average tariff rates. But the United States imposes all sorts of uh, problematic and protectionist 
policies, whether it be our trade remedies laws, this anti-dumping and countervailing duty. We have now at this point over 500 of those suckers, most of them on Chinese goods, by the way. There's the sugar program. There's the Jones Act. I mean, I could do this Mm -hmm. all day, right? That's why you have a job at Cato. Exactly. (laughs) It's because you're not winning. Right. (laughs) And when we do have, quote unquote, free trade, it's actually more managed trade pursuant to reciprocal trade deals. Mm -hmm. And look, reciprocal trade deals are fine. You know, getting new market access to a country like Korea is great. Having uh, giving policymakers an excuse to lower our own trade barriers is fine. However, first of all, the libertarian view is unilateral trade liberalization. It is not these reciprocal trade deals. But second is that these trade deals tend to have a lot of stuff that's not even close to libertarian, whether it's onerous intellectual property rules or by American procurement policies. I could do this all day. And so when you then out of the straight trade space, there's all the subsidies and we have all of these subsidies for agriculture and industry and the rest. The steel industry has just been a huge beneficiary of these and then the auto bailouts and the rest of this. Well, look, subsidies are a non-tariff trade barrier Mm -hmm. because if you give a domestic industry a ton of cash, or if you subsidize the price of that product, then foreign companies can't compete in the market. And that's why we have global subsidy rules and the rest. That's why in Switzerland, there are gardens everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And farms. Right. Because farmland is not the highest, best use of Switzerland soil without government intervention. And a carton of eggs costs 10 bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so... It's just these types of protectionist measures are pervasive. And in fact, some uh, independent organizations, say the United States, when you look at all tariff and non-tariff barriers combined, the United States is one of the more protectionist countries Mm -hmm. in the world. And certainly WTO developing country members would would say this. So the idea that there has been this Milton Friedman-esque libertarian consensus on trade and globalization is pretty nonsensical. Um, Have there been achievements, for example, the World Trade Organization or the lowering of U.S. tariff rates? Sure. Have um, libertarians succeeded in avoiding really nasty protectionism. You know, there were steel tariffs proposed in the 1990s that were defeated. Um, and have, you know, has there been this, the China PNTR granting China's admission to the WTO? Sure. But the idea that there is, you know, this this great libertarian trade policy in the United States is just, it's just silly. Yeah. No, I have to say I'm enjoying it a little bit because, first of all, I haven't called myself a neoconservative in like 15 or 20 years if you go back and you listen to the episode I did with Matt Continetti, I have very strong views about how most people don't know what a neoconservative was, never mind is, at the – for huge numbers of left-wingers and quite a few right-wingers, the sort of like the super orc crafted in Mordor, the the er neocon is John Bolton. John Bolton does not consider himself a neocon, never has. He's a rubble-doesn't-make-trouble kind of guy. And he was the keynoter the next night at the yeah. National Conservative thing speaking alongside Tucker Carlson. So, and But he's now a nationalist, right. which is great. Good for John. But for most of my life, I've been like this, you know, like one of these Star Trek geeks who's complaining how in the third season they were making Romulans do things that Romulans would never do. I've been saying none of you people are using the word neocon right and you're just using it as a place filler for all of the things you don't like and you want to put human agency behind it and say that there are string pullers out there. Villains. For a little while, globalist was that. And and what I'm really enjoying is the idea that libertarians, many of whom have done this with the word neocon for years, are now getting it themselves, even though I think on the merits it's idiotic. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, you know, movements need villains and um, particularly populist movements, right? And so it it makes sense that, you know, these guys are going to want to pin blame on someone for all of the failures of the, our culture, our markets, whatever, right? Um, and by the way, I should, I should add, um, the lack of skepticism when it comes to the various studies, whether it's on wage stagnation or the rest, um, uh, from these folks is really impressive. I mean, it, you know, in the old days, conservatives were skeptics. You see some new data and you think, well, okay, let's, let's see what else. Now, I mean, everything is accepted as gospel. And it's 
all of that is is really I think it's troubling. It is funny. Um, I do, uh, although I do... In a lol, nothing matters kind of way. (laughs) Exactly. But it's also troubling because you have this group that, um, you know, so I've typically dabbled in Republican side policies. Mm -hmm. I I helped um, with McCain's campaign and some other campaigns in the past. I used to talk to, you know, members on the Hill a good bit, mostly from the Republican caucus. And to see this group um, claim it's so-called rightful place atop the the Republican pyramid, and then to look at us as this the, the root of all of the evils right. out today is 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 troubling and and particularly troubling from a policy perspective because, like I said, you know these things are very complicated trade labor issues, uh, cultural issues, you know, and and easy solutions are really going to end up making things worse t- typically, but particularly just scapegoating a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, peacenik libertarian types. It's just not going to actually get any solutions. And that's what troubles me when I see guys like J.D. Vance, for example, talk about how libertarian economics mm. is. And I don't know him at all. Uh, I know him a little. He's a nice guy. Yeah, I, like, I like his book. But you know? the idea that you can pin the blame of the industrial Midwest on libertarian economics, right. particularly given state-level policies, um, which are so interventionist and so illiberal um, on the economic side, um, is is really frustrating. Because I actually think... There are some good solutions out there. Um, there are some good policies, not purely, you know, straight capital L libertarian policies. And to extend, instead, just scapegoat it all, blame trade, blame whatever. Uh, it really just it's it's really counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I know that the trade stuff is your lane, but there's a there's a real philosophical crisis going on here yeah. because. You hear this rhetoric, and, and again, I, I I like JD, and I think he's a serious guy. And you know, uh, you know, Warren Cass and and Raihan are you know, I I don't dismiss you know some of their arguments about the supply chain stuff, which we can talk about. And they're I think they're sincere, and you know, Raihan is a friend and is really really smart and all that. But when you hear people, when you hear some of the quotes coming out of this thing about how the free choices of individuals, whether as citizens or consumers, if they don't lead to the results that we like, are therefore a problem, we got to go back to the drawing board if yeah. that is going to become the new conservative position. And the thing, you know, you know, Tucker, again, been friends with him for a long time, his stuff about how the market is just a tool is deeply, deeply troubling because it's it, it is a tool, but it's also this expression of human liberty, right. and this idea that is now all of a sudden becoming incredibly popular on the right among people who used to there not be a dime's worth of difference between us and them on all a lot of these issues is that we need one size fits all economic policy yeah. from the top, right. and forget about the history of one-size-fits-all economic policy, the founders understood that economic policy is in many ways political policy, and one-size-fits-all politics is not how our system was set up. And it, when you create levers that allow planners to manipulate the economy, you create the possibility that very bad people are going to get their hands on yeah. those levers, like Paris or Elizabeth. I'm not saying they're bad bad people on a spiritual or moral level. I just mean people who would do bad things, you know, or AOC. Yeah. Um, and the argument that you hear from a weird coalition of people is that if we just get past this underpants gnome problem of how we're going to get all of the power, then we can have all the outcomes that we like and we can prevent anybody else from getting the tools that we created to ha- get these outcomes in the yeah. first place. Yeah, and and uh, the other problems are... I mean, there was twofold, I think. You know, one is there's never a it's there's an isolation of the bad stuff. So from trade, for example, oh, it caused dislocate job dislocation, which of course that's what competition does. So they isolate the bad and assume that there was a better alternative. Right. And without offering it. And, you know, we the the really impressive thing, and this gets to the second point, is how the Trump era is showing us, especially on trade, how the alternatives really are worse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
And you see conservatives embracing policies, whether it's tariffs or industrial policy or whatever, or, uh, you know, kind of a closer relationship between the church and state and this type of stuff. You see that the you see the failings of these policies um, happening in real time. Mm -hmm. And the idea that we can just we'll just install better bureaucrats to have better industrial policies um, that won't uh, cause an explosion of lobbying on K Street, that won't lead to all sorts of bureaucratic nightmares for American companies and workers. As we're watching it happen right now is is really weird because it's so unconservative. Yeah. Right. And and it troubles me on the trade space in particular because you see conservatives embracing policies that if it weren't attached to foreign foreigners or foreign imports, they would never in a million years go for. Because, you know, protectionism at the end of the day is just extremely inefficient redistribution. Um, you are simply forcing American consumers to pay for the, the jobs and the higher wages of certain individuals, but you're, you're doing it through just so much waste, so much deadweight loss. Um, and so instead of paying the treasury, uh, you're, you're paying those, those companies and workers directly. And, and in any other space, this type of redistribution would be at least viewed skeptically. Mm. In the trade space, all of a sudden, it's viewed as this, oh, this was obvious. I mean, how could we let um, you know China into the WTO? How could we have low tariffs? This has just been such a mess when, again, we know the alternatives. We, and, and you know, I do this practice trade law. I, I, I watch it in real time. I watch the, the bureaucratic nightmare. That, that can be um, these types of measures. Um, and it's not just – it's stuff that's in all types of domestic policy. And that's not to say there's we should have no domestic policy. But there should be skepticism about the kind of infallibility and, and omniscience of government um, and particularly federal government to solve uh, uh, what are extremely complex economic and cultural issues. Yeah. I and mean, So one of my weird – you ever see the, the – Russ Roberts and those guys did that Hayek versus Keynes yeah, video. Yeah. Hayek versus Keynes video is great. Love it. It's a very cool educational thing. But I've argued for a long time now, particularly in my um, second very underrated book, uh, that um, – Is it on sale now? Uh, it is actually. Um, tyranny cliches. Uh, the That the real sort of meta argument about economics and, and really almost epistemology of the 20th century – wasn't about wasn't between Hayek and Keynes, even though they had this famous argument. It was between Hayek and John Dewey. John Dewey is sort of a good stand-in for the progressive cult of the expert. Right. He believed that an individual mind could have such mastery of all of the data, all of the facts, all of the inputs and outputs, all of the in, uh, the the, the um, parts of the equation that the expert could outthink the market and, fi and, and and design society from above. This is what Walter Lippmann called the choice between drift and mastery. And Hayek, with his knowledge problems, right, the uses of knowledge in society, said, no, right. that you that someone far away is just never going to get enough, have access to nearly enough information to make the optimal decision. There is so much information that is in a price that has to do with everything from like what the weather was in Indonesia to whether or not someone was late to yep. work. And it's all huddled into a price and we can't unpack it. And people closest to problems solve the problems that they're closest to. That competition is this thing that is a process of discovery for what the actual price of something is. Mm -hmm. And the history of the 20th century in sort of politics stuff was that the left or the intellectuals or whatever, they bought Dewey. You can say they also bought Marx if you want because it's the same argument that individuals are smart enough to design the society. And we bought Hayek. Now, you could say we bought Nozick or whoever, but that yeah. these two philosophical things. And right before our eyes in real time, we're seeing all of these defectors leave our side and they're putting their own right-wing nation and you yeah. know, poetry around it. But on the sort of fundamental philosophical premise, they're all – leaving the room and going to the other side on this stuff. Yeah. And the other part that I would add, I mean, obviously I agree with all that. Um, the other part is the... You'd lose your Dakota ring at Cato if you Exactly. <laughs> I, I, mean, I have to. But the it's the... In, 
inherent kind of fallibility and corruptibility of man, right? You know, right. it's the whole if, if man men were angels. So, you know, when I started in this uh, movement, whatever you want to call it, uh, it was understood that, you know, it's, it's not exa- exactly that politicians and bureaucrats are corrupt. It's that the system corrupts, right. that, that it is designed to achieve political outcomes, not market outcomes or, or not necessarily good outcomes. And uh, it again, it surprises me. And, and the trade space is particularly problematic because it's complicated. People don't understand it right. There's kind of this anti-foreign bias kind of built in. Foreigners don't have a lot of say, contrary to what you might hear. Um, you know, foreigners aren't pulling the strings when it comes to uh, most U.S. policy. And so there is this it is very easy to corrupt trade policy and other policies too. And and again, like you because said, bureaucrats and planners are the ones running it. Right. And there's not a there's not a market check or there's not there's potentially no incentive for them to do the right thing. There is the incentive for them to do the political right. thing, right? This is, you know, all public choice and all that good stuff. And and of course we see industry capture, all of these things. That were, you know, if you got the conservative or libertarian handbook when you were an intern at Heritage or Cato, all of those things are in there, right? right. And this this movement is just, you said, they're throwing them all out the window. And to pursue, pursue the greater good, which quite frankly sounds quite progressive. When, when yeah, you know. and also contestable. I mean, that's part of the problem is that people have different definitions of what the greatest good is. You know, and I, I bring it up all the time, but there's that passage in, in Wealth of Nations, right, where Adam Smith says – you know, seldom will two people of the same trade or business meet at a pub or wherever where they won't soon turn it into a conspiracy against the public good. Yeah. And what he means by that is that people are constantly looking to fix prices. The players who have concentrated benefits want to game the system any way they can. Albert J. Knock called this Epstein's Law, which basically means going taking the shortest route possible to your ends. And yeah. that's why people ca- you have regulatory capture and all the rest. And Smith says this is completely unavoidable. The trick is to prevent the government from lending its imprimatur of legitimacy on these kinds of conspiracies, right? I mean, right. your businessmen are always going to try and figure out a way to get more out of the consumer and guarantee profits. That's fine. The trick is they can't go to the government and say, you, you, have, you have to keep me safe from competition and all of that. And the founding fathers understood this principle implicitly, and that was the point of faction. They understood there will always be factions. Right. The trick is to set up a system where the factions cannot get the levers of power. And now, again, this is all conservatism 101 stuff. And now the, the, the so many guys on the right are like, it's like that scene from Princess Bride. You know, Hamilton, Jefferson, you know, Madison, morons, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and they think that if, if we just us get the power, we can achieve the highest yeah. good and we can fix all these things. I'm not saying that all of their policy arguments are wrong. I'm saying their political and epistemological yeah. assumptions are wrong. Well, and it and it's kind of this fight 93 mentality, I think. Yeah. That that you know, and and again I go back to how accepting a lot of these folks are with with kind of just one study that shows oh there one study shows that Chinese imports have destroyed the marriageability of men right. or whatever. Next thing you know, that is the justification. Now Leave aside that there have been other studies that have showed different things, that that it's a very complex issue, that even the authors of that study have said things. Leave all that aside. That is all they need to to, to declare this is a crisis, and it is a crisis that requires a Flight 93 solution. You know, forget – that textbook, let's we just have to grab those levers of power, you know, regardless of all of the things that we we once thought and assumed. And you know, again, for those of us on the outside of this, um, not even those in my libertarian lair with mm. laser sharks, it's it's weird, man. I mean, it's just this this the switch was flipped, and all of a sudden, everything that you thought everybody kind of agreed on, you know, sure you agreed on the scope of foreign policy or whether you know you you, you minutia, mm-hmm. you kind of agreed on the direction the car was heading, and, right. and now they're making a U turn. Yeah, it's 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 like they put the crazy pills in the water. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Scott, once again, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. We'll have you back periodically, as we always do. Sure. We'll need. We, I didn't. This was this got thrown together at the last minute, so I, I wasn't able to, 
to prep on the nacho questions that are pressing. Yeah, no but, problem. But we will revisit those another time. We and, really should just do a whole episode on food issues. We'll, I agree. Yeah, because there's a, there's a there's a lot of wrong. I got a lot to get out. There are a lot of wrong opinions out there. there I agree. <laughs> totally. Agree. I, I I I can report for our listeners that there's somebody on the internet with wrong opinions right now. Yeah, we need to fix that. Totally. All right, man. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Okay, so Scott uh, Linscombe has left the building, and uh, this is my uh, last podcast for a little – well, I don't know. We'll just leave that at B. We haven't figured out what's coming up next because everything's in flux. Uh, Jack, what would you think of all that? What is there left to say about Scott Linscombe? <laughs> um, I don't know. He's, uh, he's, he's energetic. He, um, you know, he, makes, he makes trade wonkery interesting. Um, which I think is a hard thing to do. But he, uh, I think it'll be interesting, the feedback on the second half of the conversation, which was more in my wheelhouse than, you know, what exactly, what codicils of the of NAFTA are being changed or whatever. It's funny. Um, I meant to bring this up with him. I was recently watching Deadpool 2. Have you seen Deadpool? I have not seen Deadpool 2. Um, it's actually not bad. It's a little, little less raunchy than Deadpool 1. Like, I'd be less horrified if my daughter saw the second one than the first one because she likes the superhero movies. But um, there's this great bit of dialogue where Deadpool is yelling, rules are meant to be broken. And Colossus says, that is literally the opposite of what rules are for. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it was my friend Ron Bailey years ago who pointed out to me that contracts are actually written not to how to get people to agree to things, but to list all of the ways that you can break the agreement, right? Because if it was was a true, like, trade deal, the piece of paper would be one, the whole trade deal would be one piece of paper. It would be, say, there will be free trade. And that would be it, right? Instead, they're like 9,000 pages long because they're listing all the exceptions to the rules that they're trying to establish rather than, like, laying out the basic rule. And that's where all of these... You know, rent seekers and regulatory capture creatures. Um, remoras, as the word you often use for remoras, them. they come out like chuds from the sewers. And have you ever seen chuds? Another chud reference. <laughs> um, nice work. And Jake uh, Tapper will notice. Uh, uh, and the it's the, the profit is in the fine print on page five hundred and seventy three of these things, and. So the shorter you can get these kinds of agreements, the less opportunities for regulatory capture and rent-seeking and all of the rest exist, and the fewer opportunities for that kind of thing um, arise. And I think it's an important way to think about a lot of this kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, Jack, are you looking forward to a house and dog sitting for me? (laughs) Yeah, it's like looking into a future where I actually own a home. Um. And um, dogs, <laughs> and I dogs. guess. But you have a dog in the house you live in now, right? It's just not your dog. No, 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 not, not anymore. That was that was like, I haven't. That hasn't been the case for me in more than two years. Oh, is that right? Yeah, you killed it. <laughs> <laughs> I was hungry. Didn't feel like going to the grocery store. No, I didn't. I didn't. I did not. I, unlike President Obama, I did not eat a dog. Uh, I've never eaten a dog. Uh, I don't know what dog that you eat. know of. No, I've never. Eaten a dog. Um, I would remember. But, yeah, I, it'll be nice. Just hope I don't get – I hope no one doxes you while I'm there. Yeah. Although that that feels like – I think that would be a, a nice death for me, to be killed by people wanting to kill you while I was at your house. Yeah, I mean, I mean let's put it this way. If I had to choose – one of the means of, the means of your imminent death. Uh-huh. I'd be probably pretty high on my list as well. <laughs> I as long as I go out like taking a couple of the of the people trying to kill me with me. That's fine. I'll I'll be like Boromir defending and the dogs are your hobbit are the hobbits. Uh, yeah, but make sure the dogs are okay. You know. Well, the, the in Boromir saves the hobbits. Okay. They they're, they Fair enough, fair enough. They are captured but not killed. Yeah, I mean normally we would take our dogs on cross country trips like we did last year with the uh, um, with that uh, RV that we rented, 
but there are sort of special circumstances this year. So we are leaving the beasts behind. So we're going to need lots of proof of life updates from you and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and you just got to be really, really careful about not letting Zoe kill any of our neighbor's dogs because the whole neighborhood is full of small dogs now. And um, particularly these two mini spaniels that hate – and they, they start it all the time. But they, they write checks that their, their, their chompers can't cash and um, uh, they pick fights with Zoe all the time and Zoe will not put up with it. And so there's, there's true hatred there. Um, so you got to be careful about all that. Anyhow, um, anything else that we need to discuss? No? You always uh, hate that question. <laughs> I'm just trying to start a brief, you know. Well, it's just you're offloading the work of this podcast onto me by saying, like, Jack. Why should this podcast be any different than any other part of my life? <laughs> Jack, please tell, give me give us something to talk about. Well, we can talk about my rain-soaked dalliance with a former podcast guest. Yeah, so you were spotted uh, in uh, on Capitol Hill, was it? No, I spotted him. Uh, well, I was trying to do it like a bold-faced name is Gossicom. You. What young man was spotted with 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 eligible <laughs> <laughs> bachelor congressman holding sharing an umbrella? Yeah, I was just walking uh, walking right by the Capitol South Metro, and this fellow in a suit was running. It was raining. I had an umbrella. He didn't ran by me relatively quickly, not as fast as I could move, but uh-huh. a decent clip, especially for someone in a suit. That's hard to do. I've done it a couple times. Not ideal. And I only had a, I don't know, half-second glimpse of his face, but that's all it took for me to realize. It was Mike Gallagher. Uh So I shouted at him, and he he stopped in the rain, took out his AirPods, turned around, and then gave me a few seconds to explain who I was. And then he came over and talked to me under under the umbrella I had. So it was nice. It was a nice little surprise for Uh my Wednesday evening. And you discussed, because we discussed on the last podcast, and by email we've discussed this, about having a... um half-baked ideas episode of the podcast where we come up with the ideas that are really cool but might need a little work. Yeah, I even suggested that you both be half-baked while doing the episode uh-huh. because it's legal here. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not going to get too detailed about my history with various substances, but um I would be a very if I were stoned, I would be very very bad at podcasting. <laughs> um just it's not, not a good idea. Um, <laughs> drinking I could do, but like being stoned would be a very bad idea. Um, and uh, well, it'd be entertaining. Yeah, no. Look, if we could figure out a way to monetize it, where like if if enough people you know subscribe to our new thing, you know, watch Jonah get high on the podcast, kind of thing, we can talk about that. Look, if Alex Jones can do it, then certainly you can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, the half big people should send in ideas because uh, we're going to get this together at some point. If you go back and you listen to the episode where where Mike Gallagher, a congressman from Wisconsin's eighth district, um, I believe it's where the Packers play, which is a good place to be a congressman from if you're into that kind of thing. Yep. And um, he kind of took over the podcast with me last time and started asking all sorts of questions about half-baked ideas. And one of his is he wants pull-up bars in every airport uh, sort of waiting area so people can, like, do exercise and you get some corporation to sponsor it, which I actually think is a great idea. I thought he wanted the Marines to sponsor it. Maybe it was Marines, but um, I, I think there are more corporate opportunities for that than the Marines. But either way, that would be good. Why, why would corporations sponsor? Brought to you? I don't know. They could pay for it for the Marines kind of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, Gotta love the military-industrial complex. Do you want to siphon off resources from our boys for this, or do you want to have evil corporations pay for it? Um, I would have. I would prefer that Mexico pay for it, frankly. But I don't know if that's an option these days. Uh, that's least- actually that's that's some thinking right there. <laughs> Another one that we talked about was taking over Greenland, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, which actually there's a again these are half baked, not just baked ideas, right? This is not like. Um, let's put on a charity event where Superman fights the Hulk, right? That's a totally crazy idea. Yeah. Um, they would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> these are ideas that you have to sort of figure out where the bad idea part of it is. Um, so, like, I would say my airborne volcano uh, laser lancing idea is a two-thirds baked idea because there are a lot of problems with it. 
Yeah, it could but, cause more eruptions than it stops. But letter, my letters of mark thing, you know, and papal ninjas, uh, these are all half-baked things. So we're looking for more half-baked ideas. We're going to come up with some on our own too, but we can have a rich list of uh, listener suggestions. Put your name attached to it. Send it to theremnantpod at gmail.com. Yes. Um, and also, if you guys have any – if people out there have any questions about the new – Goldberg Hayes uh, joint, or interesting that you switched the name around. Yeah, well, I do that from time to time just to see if people are listening. And um, uh, it is alphabetically correct. That's true, and in height order. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, we have an email address. Uh, it's Hayes Goldberg twenty nineteen. Yeah, at gmail dot com. If you're having problems getting the G file. If you want to send us a resume or something or you have some other inquiry, uh, that's the best email address to send to. Um, if you want to sponsor something on the podcast or something else, that's the best email to, spo- to, to, to use. It's HayesGoldberg2019 at Gmail. And uh, that's about all I got. Um, oh, and again, sign up for the G file and other updates at Reagan35x.com. So with that... Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for to Sleep Number. Thank you to Scott Lincecum. Thank you to Jack. And uh, No, you won't. This is a podcast. Oh, sorry. Premature. Now what? I'm, 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 I'm lost. <laughs> I feel like a mental patient wandering around in the snow. I've got nothing to do. All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>